Our opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. Hey guys, and welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And we are talking about Israel Keys today. This is our first two-parter and our sixth episode yay yes <laughs> our next will be 10 episodes that's our next milestone to hit you know we do want to just say this is a heavy one it's a lot worse than hello kitty it is lots of trigger warnings we're gonna cover stalking kidnapping home invasion robbery guns torture rape murder animal abuse if any of those are too much for you to handle it's probably best to uh, avoid this two-parter. This is not your episode. But if you listen to Two Prime a lot, you may even know of Israel Keys and some of the stuff he's done. I'm not going to go into all the details, but I go into enough that it's heavy. Yeah, she did a deep dive and it was a lot. Just reading it was uh, yeah. was tough for me. So I'm sure doing the research was intense. I'm glad that's over. Should we begin? Let's start. Israel Keys was a methodical serial killer who traveled across the country burying kill kits he would later use on his victims. Only hunting strangers, he would then kidnap people from remote areas like campgrounds and by lakes. Sometimes taking two victims at a time, he would kill them and bury them far from where he had kidnapped them. He bound them with plastic ties, tortured and sexually assaulted the women, and then asphyxiated his victims with one even being dismembered. He carried out these sadistic fantasies all while working full-time, even running a successful small business at one point and raising his daughter with his then-girlfriend. Keyes toyed with investigators after his capture in 2012 and left this world leaving behind so many unanswered questions. He was the serial killer living a quiet, seemingly peaceful life next door. None of his co-workers, friends, or neighbors suspected anything when he was caught. Even his living girlfriend was shocked that one of the victims had been tortured and killed right outside of their home one night in the shed while she lay asleep in their bed. So we are going to start at his childhood. Keyes was born in Richmond, Utah on January 7, 1978. He was the second oldest of 10 children to Heidi Hankison and John Jeffrey Keyes. Many of the children had spiritual names. Israel means he who struggles with God. When Keyes was still a very young boy, his family moved to Colville, Washington. They lived in a small wood cabin with no electricity or running water. Keyes and his siblings were homeschooled throughout their childhood. He was exposed to extremist religion at a young age through the Christian identity identity movement and attended a church called the Ark that was around in the 80s. While in Washington, he became friends with convicted murderer Chevy Kehoe, a neighbor of the Keyes family. He built his first wood cabin when he was just 16 and worked for a general contractor in Colville from 1995 to 1997. Keyes was tall before most of his peers and stood at six feet two inches by his teen years. So do we think Chevy Kehoe was like a big influence on his personality or I don't know I was going to ask you that what you thought because you know he was a white supremacist another terrible person who was convicted of murders and he tortured some of his victims too and they weren't murdering 
like during the same timeline. No, and they never did anything together. And I don't even know if they talked about this stuff because he later goes on to talk about his idol, Ted Bundy, but he never says anything about Kehoe. So it's just a coincidence. to For two really sadistic, horrible people, people yes. to be in that same area and be neighbors and know each other. Were they friends too? Yeah. Maybe that was like the company you keep, right? That's- Maybe. And he just happened to attract another serial killer. Yeah. Very odd fact about his life. Yes, I did not know that. I didn't either. And when it was Kehoe, I had heard about him, but I had to go and and look him up again. Then I remembered he's just another terrible garbage bag human. Yeah, I don't know much about him, so... He could be a whole other episode. He and another person burglarized and kidnapped, tortured and murdered a family. And And he had, I think, a couple other murders he was convicted. But like I said, that's a whole other episode. If we ever want to do that, he's evil too. Let's get into this evil guy. Okay. In the late 1990s, the Keys family moved to a mostly Amish community in Smyrna, Maine. They tapped trees to collect maple syrup, and this was how they made their money. And then Keys' mother is known to have jumped from religion to religion. She dabbled in Mormonism for a while. She also attended the Amish Mennonite church briefly while they were in Maine. Sounds like it was something that was frustrating to Keys. Around this time is when Keys actually started breaking into homes with a friend. But notice that when he would hurt an animal at the home, the friend would act surprised. And by hurting, I mean he would literally shoot these animals. Oh, that just makes me so angry. Yes. Yeah, he was terrible. And this is just the start. When Keys was 14, the family had some friends visiting and he decided to walk with the kid that was his age into the woods. He decided to take his sister's cat which he said he didn't like because it got into the trash, and took a piece of parachute cord and tied it around the cat's neck and to a tree. He had a twenty-two revolver and shot the cat in the stomach. The cat ran around and crashed into the tree and started vomiting. He said that he looked at the cat and started laughing because he thought it was funny, but when he looked at the other boy that he was with, He was hunched over and throwing up. When they went back to their parents, the kid told the parents about what had happened. And then Keyes was spoken to about it. But Keyes says that it was then that he realized he didn't respond to things like others did. And this told him that he was different from other people because he liked hurting living things and it gave him a thrill. Well, you know, they say that hurting animals is one of the biggest red flags when it comes to serial killers. Yes, that lack of empathy. Yeah, he clearly had a completely different response than the kid did, which is, I feel a more normal response yes. when you see an animal hurt. And I mean, that poor kid probably was just like, what is happening? Yes. This He's a, like a, a crazy. An, was he like an accomplice to this? Did he feel like that? It just says after that, I don't think he had any other interaction with the boy. So the family probably was <laughs> like, we stay away from Israel when we're visiting, if we visit. Yeah. And was this brought up to the family? Did they know? Yes, it was. So the family, the boy had told the parents and the parents obviously told Key's parents what happened and they talked to him and he just didn't understand why it was such a big deal and said that he had just enjoyed the whole thing. And his parents weren't like, that's messed up. You don't do things like that. They did. His parents definitely felt that was not the right thing to do, but it just sounds like that was... um, like a defining moment in his life where he realized he's he's different, that lack of empathy. Yeah. Well, I bet, you know, he was wetting the bed at that time, too. 
I'm just saying. Jennifer's so sure he wet the bed. <laughs> and it fits in that trifecta of what you need to be a serial killer. Because we so. said, what is it? It's harming animals, wetting the bed, and arson is what they found, right? Yes. So if somebody has those three, it's bad news. Yep. And he's already got the biggest one. Yes. So, and I'm sure he's not going to admit with his ego that he wet the bed. So exactly. Yeah. So because we were talking about this and, and I said, well, I didn't read anything about him wetting the bed. And Jennifer says, oh, he did. <laughs> he totally did. <laughs> he just doesn't want to say it. And you're probably right. He definitely likes to steer the conversation about him in a certain direction, certain light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He wants to be like, just, I don't know. I don't know it's... what this We'll get into, yeah, how he wants to be seen, because it's strange. He doesn't want to be seen as a serial killer, but he loves his crimes, and he loves talking about his crimes. It's strange. We'll get into it. We'll get into it, yep. Well, there is something that happens, and this was on March 3rd of 1996. 12-year-old Julie Harris, a double amputee with prosthetic feet, goes missing in Colville while waiting for the bus. Her prosthetic feet were found by the Colville River a month after her disappearance. Julie's murder is still unsolved, and some believe this could have been Keyes' first murder since he was in the area around that time, and he would have been about 18 years old. Considering his track record that we'll get into, it's not hard to believe. Right. And we'll go into it later, but he had a thing about not harming children and not wanting to break into homes with children after he had his daughter, but this was before he had his daughter. And a lot of people think that maybe he just didn't want to admit to actually hurting and killing a child as his first crime. I could believe that, especially with his personality. Yes, because he wants to navigate every conversation. He wants you to see the story he wants to project. And that part of it, I don't think he wanted people to think was him. Well, he's horrible. Awful, yes. So his first admitted sexual assault was around 1997. A young girl that he guessed was between 14 to 18 years old was tubing down the Deschutes River in Oregon with friends. He stalked the girl from behind a tree line while she floated down the river. Once she became separated from her friends, he grabbed her, pulled her into the woods, and violently sexually assaulted her. He had originally intended to kill her, he said, but he decided not to. He said that he put her back into the tube and let her float away. Now, police can't find any report of an assault that matches this description in Oregon around that time, so they believe that it may have gone unreported. Which that's is not, true. It's not uncommon for rapes to go unreported. He sounds like such a creep hiding in the woods. Right. You know, waiting for this girl to be by herself. It also sounds like he doesn't know what he wants to do right now. He's like still learning what he likes. Yeah. So this sounds like this is the years where he's developing his... His MO is... His MO, yes. So I guess, unfortunately, since she didn't report it, there's nothing that ties... This was his first admitted sexual assault, and so they do believe it did happen, but they're not able to link it to anybody to confirm. I see. So when Keyes was about 17, he rejected all religion and declared himself an atheist. His mother excommunicated him from the family and told all of his siblings not to speak to him. Then on July 9th, 1998, Keyes enlisted in the army. He served as a specialist in Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry, and from 1998 through 2000 was stationed at Fort Lewis, then Fort Hood, and even in Egypt. While in the Army, Keyes manned mortars, handled automatic weapons, and located and neutralized landmines. While in Egypt, he shared a barrack with Shaw McGuire, and they formed a friendship. But McGuire never fully trusted Keyes due to the conversation they had where McGuire had said something in jest, and Keyes responded in all seriousness with, 
I want to kill you, Maguire, during his uh-huh. service. What kind <laughs> so, of friend is that? <laughs> we've never said that to each other. No. I, I don't think I've had any friend ever say that to me. That would be a red flag. I, uh, think, I think that's a huge red flag, don't you? Yes. A little violent, mm-hmm. hostile. Mm-hmm. Please don't harm me. He's coming right out with it that he wants to kill his friend. So. Yeah. And, you know, they're in the army. He's got some skills that yes. he's learned. I, I would not take that lightly. Yes, me either. During his service, he is arrested and charged with driving under the influence. Then, in 2001, he met Tammy Hawkins, and they started dating, and she became pregnant. They ended up having a daughter, and he moved in with her shortly before his honorable discharge from the Army. They lived at the Macaw Reservation in Nia Bay, Washington, since Tammy belonged to the tribe. You probably are wondering, why would anybody want to date a serial killer? Of this course, creepy. I mean, I, I don't know if he's a charming dude, like he, if he puts on like a, a facade, but it definitely sounds like he's a creep. Like it's, Well, he did idolize Ted Bundy, who definitely put on that charming facade. I see. Keys was not some charming guy. From what I read, they connected due to music. They both liked heavy metal and just some similarities in their upbringing. And they got each other's sense of humor. She said that she never would have suspected anything. He was good to her. Did um, they say how she how they met? So Keys and Tammy met through, it wasn't an online dating service. It was like a phone service. And so you would call somebody up and I guess leave your information. If they liked you, they could call you back. And so he had meant to leave a message for another girl and I guess accidentally got Tammy's number. And when she heard it, he messed up. He was like, is it done? Do I hang up? Just, so he had like that nervous charm, maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's what she liked. But when she heard the message, she was like, oh, that that sounds funny. I'm, I'm going to give this guy a call. They met at Applebee's and started dating. I bet he was a cheap date. Applebee's. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> probably got like the two for one. <laughs> Well, they got a a three for two because they ended up having a kid. Okay. (laughs) You have a point. (laughs) So, yeah, what's in that meal? Um... (laughs) Gross. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So, Keith ends up gaining custody of his daughter due to Tammy's drug abuse. And later, he and Tammy end up working out an agreement through the court and they do raise the girl with some type of agreed upon custody arrangement that suits both of them. So for a while, he was a single dad taking care of his daughter. And by all accounts that I have read, he loved his daughter. He cared for his daughter. And and people say he was a good father. And I have a hard time saying that because he ends up killing people's daughters. But everybody says he was a good dad to his daughter. And that's so bizarre because, you know, let's say that's true and he Mm -hmm. is a good dad. How do you turn that off and just become this totally horrible, just different person? Um, Well, he says he's basically two different people. So does he have multiple personalities? What does I mean? I don't think he was ever diagnosed with multiple personality disorder, but he believed he loved the double life. He said he loved having that aspect of his life that was completely just this thrill for him to hunt people and hurt them and so that was that life and then his other life was his sweet little family life that he had yeah he was a he was a monster and i wonder is there any information on 
his daughter. She is not talked about except for people to say that she's doing well. She's well adjusted. And her mother, Tammy, has said that whenever she wants to talk about her father, she will be honest with her about it. Everyone says that she is a well adjusted person. And so that's great to know because I'm sure that's got to be traumatic when that conversation either did happen or is going to happen. Right. You can't even begin to imagine like right. the trauma. Right. Especially because she just knew him as this loving dad. And to learn. it was It's kind of like BTK. Yes. He has a little bit of so many different serial killers, really. But he, he swears that he did not copy anybody. I mean, he read about them, but he maybe he just took a little from like each. It sounds like he did. Somewhere between 2001 and 2005, Keyes claimed to have murdered a couple while he was living in Washington. And although he didn't admit to it plainly, he hinted to the couple being buried in a location near a valley. However, he would not disclose any other details that could have led investigators to any missing persons around that time, such as their ages, whether they were Washington residents, tourists, or abducted from another state and then transported to Washington for the murder. So they have not identified those victims. That's so sad. Well, and then in the summer or fall of 2005 or 2006, Keyes murdered two more unknown victims. He disposed of one of the bodies in Lake Crescent in Washington. He also alluded to the murder of two more between this time frame. But the only other details he gave was that at least one of the bodies was disposed of in Lake Crescent in Washington, and he used anchors to submerge the body. The bodies that were submerged in the lake... Do we think they were just affected by the water and maybe... Probably decomposed. They can't find any remains from the murders he claims he committed during that time. You know, there are families out there wondering what happened to their family members. So that's just sad that he never released those details. No, he just, he released what he wanted. Asshole. He is. In 2003, in Northwest Washington, 19-year-old Wendy Morris drove down State Route 112 late one night, which passes through the Macaw Reservation. The highway is deserted and her gas tank light comes on. Scared to run out of gas on this road at night in the middle of nowhere, she comes excited to see there's a gas station in the distance. She pulls into the station and notices it is closed, but the gas pump lights are on, so she fills up her tank. While pumping the gas, she notices a truck idling in the parking lot of the gas station. She can see a dark figure in the driver's seat and it looks like he is staring at her. With her tank finally full, she hurriedly gets back into her car and starts back towards the road. She notices as she pulls out of the station that the truck is also pulling out right behind her. She looks at her cell phone and realizes her battery is dead. Oh, just got all of these <laughs> terrible things. It's like a like, movie, right? She's alone. Mm-hmm. She's on being... a dark, deserted road. Yes, her phone's dead, yeah. and she sees a creepy guy yes. like just waiting on her. Mm-hmm. God, like... Don't do it. Don't drive. Don't do any of those things. Okay. Always (laughs) have someone with you. Make sure your phone is charged. Unfortunately, we have to get gas. Maybe wait until the morning to get gas. Yes. And it sounds like she had to drive this road a lot. And so she was used to it. Obviously, this night was a little different. So she starts to speed up. But the truck accelerates, too, and keeps right up with her. This went on for about an hour, she said. And at one point, the truck got so close to her rear bumper that she could no longer see the headlights. So he's right on top of her car. Yeah, and it's not like she can call 911. Nope. Then the truck speeds up into the lane beside her, passes her, and darts right in front of her and slams on its brakes. 
So she obviously then slams on her brakes. She's just startled for a moment and realizes she needs to speed around. As she's thinking all this and trying to respond, the driver's side of the truck flies open and a tall, thin, but muscular man steps out. He looks over six feet tall to her. The man motions for Wendy to get out of her car and come over to him. How about no? Right. How about <laughs> hell no? <laughs> it's like you're you're already on like tailing me and you get out telling me to come out no what makes you think that's a smart decision yeah wendy was on the same page as you so she drove around him again as she did he jumps back into his truck and continues to chase her at this point she's fearful that she may be run off the road at any minute and starts to think he's going to catch her all the stuff is going through her mind that this just could be the end Then they approach a junction and she starts to see other cars on the road. As it begins to become more and more populated, she watches in a rearview mirror and notices the truck slowing down and it eventually turns around and she watches its headlights fade into the distance back towards Mia Bay where Keys lived at that time. Mm. So it's not, is it confirmed that that was him? It's not confirmed that it was him. This is just an experience she had. So this is the account of Wendy Morris. And after, of course, everything has come out now about Keys, it really links him to this incident and sounds exactly like something he would do. I'm so glad that she was able to get away. Yeah, she could have been a victim easily. Easily, right. I mean, and all of, there were just all the factors there that could have, her in a very like dangerous situation Mm -hmm. and so i'm just so glad she was able to escape me too so in 2004 tammy started abusing opioids and from 2004 to 2007 Keyes starts to withdraw from his relationship with tammy and takes up online chat rooms because now it's online chat rooms it's no longer the phone calls I bet he's on some horrible sites, too. Not like eHarmony or or Match. (laughs) What is it? The fish one? Um, Plenty of fish. Plenty of fish. I mean, I think that one's okay. He liked fishing. Plenty of murders. Is there a dating site for that? That's what he would have been on. I'm sure he was on some shady site. So he starts becoming interested in Kimberly Anderson, a nurse practitioner. During this time, Tammy is in a bad accident while under the influence, and Keys actually takes their daughter again full-time while she goes to rehab. Once out of rehab, Tammy and Keys begin a sexual relationship again, but Keys tells her that he's not going to get back together with her because he is attracted to Kimberly. And then Kimberly gets offered a job in Alaska and invites Keys to go with her. He accepts and after a custody battle with Tammy because, you know, she's back in love with Keys and wants them to be together, but he says no. They end up finally agreeing to share custody of their daughter and they end up alternating which parent she will live with on a yearly basis. So they'll keep her for a year and trade off kind yeah. of like that? Yeah. And here I am wondering again, how is he getting these women? Because I know. I know. He had a double life. He was literally two people, he said. So he would keep the murder stuff completely separate from his home life. That was one of his rules is everything involving his hunting and stalking and murdering was far away from home, had nothing to do with his family, and he kept everything separate. He would go on these trips, fly all over the U.S. He also traveled overseas, and during these trips is when he would commit these crimes. I feel like you would just notice weird things. This is a question that's asked is how did his girlfriend not know he was doing these things, but she worked and traveled a lot. He did have a construction business, which would be easy for him to say, well, I have to go. And do this big job, so I'll see you in a week. Yeah, I guess it was easy. And she didn't ask questions. He gave no signs to his family members or co-workers that anything was going on. Kept it completely separate. 
That's crazy to me how you can just have no kind of signs. Well, he had signs in his childhood for sure. There were signs in his childhood, yes, but he was able to hide things when he became an adult really well. That's what it seems like, which is insane. So on March 1st, 2007, Keyes leaves Washington and drives to Alaska. He starts a small construction company called Keyes Construction. He advertises construction services online and his business becomes successful in Anchorage. Kimberly and Keyes move into an almost 2,000 square foot home and Keyes does some remodeling to the home's interior and adds a 120 square foot framed storage shed to the end of the driveway beside their home. Then in April of 2009, Keyes abducts a female on the East Coast. He murders her, and then he takes her across state lines and buries her in upstate New York. During this time, he also robbed a bank in Tupperware, New York, and it is believed that 49-year-old Deborah Feldman, who was last seen at her home in Hackensack, New Jersey on April 8, 2009, was his victim. He wants this to just be the hardest time for you to figure out who these victims are. He plays with the investigators. They have such a hard time getting information out of him. In this particular case with Deborah, they show him a picture of her because they're trying to find out about these other crimes and who these victims are so they can their family can have answers. When he's shown a picture of Deborah, he actually says, I'm not ready to talk about that one yet. I wonder why. We don't know. Triggered him. You wonder what had happened. Did she say something to get to him? Did she fight really hard? We don't know. Well, I hope she like told him what a horrible person he was and, and worse. I hope she made it a nightmare for him. Yeah. During 2009, Keyes buries a kill kit in Vermont, which was stowed in a watertight five-gallon bucket. The materials inside included zip ties, Drano, duct tape, ammunition, guns, and a silencer. So this is, I guess, where he starts to get his kill kits together and plant them all over. Yeah, sounds like in the early 2000s or mid-2000s is when he starts putting together these kill kits. When he's on his trips, he's burying these by state parks and different places where people maybe wouldn't find them. And these were planned? Years in advance, he would bury kill kits just to have them there. So when he was ready and had the urge and was in the area, he knew where he had a kill kit and could access it. What a sicko. This reminds me of the show Dexter a little bit because, you know. Yeah, he had his kill kits too. Except he killed bad people. I would love it if Dexter got a hold of Israel. Yeah. Well, in June of 2008, he decided to take a trip and flew from Anchorage to Chicago, got in a rental car, and drove then to Indiana to see his family. Afterwards, he drove to New York to check on some property he owned there. Then he visited Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, bought a fishing license, and did some fishing. Then on the last night of his trip, he drove back to Vermont. Driving around the Burlington area, he spotted an abandoned farmhouse. Then he drove around the surrounding areas. While in a neighborhood in Essex, he spotted the courier's home and notices that they have an attached garage. The neighborhood seems quiet, and he decides to come back there. Later, he parked his car at the hotel he was staying at nearby and walked to the courier's home. He arrived there after midnight. Keyes was dressed head to toe in black with an unlit headlamp strapped to his forehead. He snuck around the outside of the courier's home and cut their phone line and then watched for neighbors. One neighbor's dog starts barking at him, so he hides until the owner brings the dog inside. Then he goes into the garage and checks the registration in the vehicles. He notices that it is an older couple that lives in the home, so he figures there are no young children around. So apparently, he has a rule that he created after he had his daughter, and that is he will never hurt a child. I guess that was 
one good thing i mean what, what can you really say like the yeah. bare minimum like you no. don't hurt children or don't kill people how about that and we can't really call it a redeeming quality he has no redeeming qualities exactly he, he didn't hurt his own daughter but he hurt other people so yeah i don't hurt um, other human beings animals don't do that um just because you say you have this rule does not make you a better person for that right he described it as a blitz attack he made his way into their kitchen after breaking the glass window on the door leading into the home. He quickly headed into their bedroom where he found Bill, 49, and Lorraine, 55, asleep. The couple awoke to see Keys at the foot of their bed with a headlamp on in all black and holding a gun. He tied the couple up with zip ties and asked them about the layout of their house and whether they had any valuables like a safe, a gun, ATM cards, etc. Keys took Lorraine's handgun, the couple's cell phones, and then he forced them into their own car before driving them to an abandoned farmhouse he had seen earlier in the day. After he got them to the farmhouse, he took Bill inside and tied him to a stool in the basement. When Keys returned to the car, Lorraine had escaped from the front seat and was running towards the main road. Keys ran after her and tackled her to the ground. Oh, she almost got away. I know. He then dragged her into the farmhouse and to one of the bedrooms. While he tied her arms and legs to the bed, he heard Bill shouting, Where's my wife? Where's my wife? When Keys went down into the basement, he found that Bill had struggled partly free. Keys got upset at this because this was not going as he planned. Keys then lost control and struck Bill in the head with a shovel over and over. Then he took out a gun and shot him multiple times, killing him. Keys then went back into the bedroom where Lorraine was and cut off her clothes with a knife and proceeded to rape her two times. During the assault, Keys strangled Lorraine, making her pass out. Keys then brought Lorraine down to the basement and showed her her dead husband's body. Then he sat her on a bench near him and strangled her from behind with a rope. Keys put the bodies in large black trash bags and dragged them to a corner in the basement, dumping Drano into the bags. He tossed debris he found in the basement on them and then left with their car. He took the car to a nearby parking lot where he had left a rental. Then he switched vehicles and drove off. God, that's so terrifying what they had to go through, that poor couple. He's like a living nightmare, cutting the phone cord. They have no way to call for help. Yeah, wearing a headlamp. All the nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. And then he must be like a really strong guy because he can overpower Multiple people. Yes. And he was strong. So he's over six foot two. And even though he was a thin build, he was muscular and very strong. And what's with the Drano? Starts to dissolve the skin tissue and things like that. So that's how he kind of got rid of the bodies. He expected it to start to break down the body. Right. I see. June 8, 2011, Essex, Vermont. Detective George Murdy, the supervisor of the EPD's Bureau of Criminal Investigations and of the department's search and rescue team at this time, received a call regarding a missing persons report. A woman named Diana Smith had reported her brother and sister-in-law missing. Diana worked with her sister-in-law, Lorraine Courier, at Fletcher Allen Healthcare in Burlington, Vermont. Lorraine had not shown up for work that day. Concerned, she reached out to her brother, Bill Courier, who should have been at work that day at the University of Vermont's lab department. She was then informed that Bill had not shown up for work either. It was out of character for either of them to just not show up to work, let alone both, so she drove by their house and tried to phone them. With no response to her call and it appearing they were not inside the home, she phoned the police. Within 45 minutes of the missing person's call, the Essex police arrived at the Courier's home to conduct a welfare check. At the front window, the shades were pulled down and all of the doors were locked. While looking through one of the garage windows, they noticed the car was missing and a shattered window pane in the door that led from the garage to the kitchen. Police looked in through a kitchen window and noticed shards of glass all over the kitchen floor. 
Later, after police gained access into the home, they discovered Bill's diabetic medication was left on the counter and his wallet was also still in the home. Lorraine's purse was missing. However, her contact lenses and glasses were left, which she needed to drive. They also discovered that a gun was missing from the home. After searching the inside of the home, the police discovered that the phone line had been cut just below the panel box. Neighbors told the police that their dogs had been upset and acting strange the evening of the disappearance and that they regretted not looking into it. Yeah, I mean. But then they could have just become a victim, too. I mean, he was not afraid of anybody. So, yeah, he may have switched it up and then gone after them. But sounds like some of the neighbors feel bad. But don't look into it yourself. It could be Israel Keys. Call the police. They'll handle it. Absolutely. A report came in that a man had been seen driving the courier's missing Saturn sedan on June night at approximately 1 a.m. in the Essex Junction Shopping Center near Pearl Street. The tipster was a former Tulsa police officer and stated that the driver almost collided with his car while backing out of a parking space. The driver, a male, was the only one in the vehicle. Tipster said he didn't really think anything more about it until he heard the missing persons report about the couriers on the news. The description he gave created a composite sketch that was used by the police and garnished many leads, but all of the leads were dead ends. Murdy decided to look into the tipster and called the Tulsa Police Department, where he was informed that the tipster's credibility should be questioned. During a follow-up interview with the tipster, the tipster claimed that he was pressured into providing a composite sketch and that he really hadn't seen the driver that well. Detective Murdy was also reviewing hundreds of hours of surveillance videos from the 25 businesses in the Pearl Street area, setting up interviews with Bill and Lorraine's co-workers, friends, family. He monitored a canvas of the courier's neighborhood and oversaw or participated in various searches of the area, totaling 36 square miles. Murdy sounds like he really wanted to solve this case and he wanted to find them. We love that. We, yeah. we do. And completely different from the Phoebe case. Oh, yeah. He was looking into everything. We love to hear when they're really just researching this case, trying to find out what happened mm -hmm. and any leads. Thank you, Detective Murdy. He's a one. Yes. On June 10th, 2011, the courier's missing green sedan was found in Essex Junction in a parking lot between two apartment buildings at 241 Pearl Street near a dumpster, a roughly five-minute drive from the courier's home. Murdy's team took the car and the dumpster to the department's evidence and processing site. Again, in Phoebe's case, remember they didn't take the trash? Like yeah. He's taking everything. This is such a great job. It really is. We, like I said, we're impressed by this because mm -hmm. it's going like the next step or the extra mile yes. to, to find these people. And so we appreciate that. And they also began collecting security videos from the area. Again, the opposite of Phoebe's case. Anyway, mm -hmm. analysts discovered broken glass on the floor of the sedan. This indicated to the police that whoever had broken into the courier's home had taken the car and most likely used it to abduct them. Further inspection of Courier's home showed that someone had tried to pry open their back door in the garage prior to smashing in the glass to gain entrance into their home. There was no activity in the Courier's bank account or on their credit cards since their disappearance, but even with more information, the police still did not have any leads. So he took this stuff, but he didn't actually use their money or anything in their bank account? No, he does do that for some of his victims. And he had initially thought he would do a ransom note, but he just didn't go that route with them. It sounds like he did this just for murder then. Yes. Not for a robbery, you know? Right. He robs too, but it's a lot of the stuff he does is like combinations of things. Robbery, arson, robbery, murder, murder, and arson. There is a no holds bar. He will pick and 
and choose. And I don't know if he has murder dice or what, how he does it. Yeah, it sounds like whatever mood he was in. Sounds like he had urges. Maybe he just wanted to add that just to scare them to think like, okay, if I give him my stuff, like my ATM cards, he can take it and maybe he'll spare us. And maybe he used that as like a tactic. He would like to play with his victim too and make them think they were going to be okay. He was going to let them go. Evil. Five days after their disappearance, the Courier's family made a plea to the public and asked for help in finding them. Bill's sister, Diana Smith, spoke about them and thanked the police for their continued efforts. Then part of the speech was directed to her missing brother and sister-in-law. Bill and Lorraine, if you can hear this, know that we all love you and we are doing everything we can to find you and bring you home. On June 15, 2011, Keyes drove the rental car back to Chicago, boarded a plane to California, spent the night in San Francisco, and then caught a flight back to Anchorage, Alaska. So he put 4,000 miles between himself and his two victims. Just to throw throw them off. That was his method, killing across state lines and even taking bodies then sometimes across another state line. So you have this person from one state killing in another state and then dumping the bodies in a third state Yeah, a lot of times. As we know, there's criminal databases, but... It's hard to track that. Across state lines, right? On June 17th, 2011, the family of Bill and Lorraine gathered at the police department to announce an award of up to $10,000 for any info leading to their safe return. Still with no leads, Detective Murdy requested outside help for this case. Special Agent Michelle Dolfa at the FBI's Rutland, Vermont office was contacted. He also requested a consultation with the agency's behavioral analysis unit in Quantico. June 21st, 2011, Murdy, along with two of his detectives and three of his investigators, had the first consultation with the FBI special agent, Robert Drew, Michelle Dolfa, and Janie Yemens, with the agency's critical incidents response group in the behavioral analysis unit stationed at Quantico. The police were advised that a thorough forensic investigation into the courier's work and home computers would take place. Another consult would occur on July 22nd. Then on August 15, 2011, Special Agent Drew gave Murdy an analysis of what he thinks was leading up to the courier's disappearance, which included a description of Bill and Lorraine's backgrounds. The report on Bill said that he was a punctual, reliable worker, liked by his co-workers, and was quiet and reserved. Lorraine's report stated that she was quiet and compassionate, although she had become very politically outspoken. The report concluded that they had a low to moderate risk of being victims of a violent crime. It also concluded that they were abducted by a white male acting alone and using a firearm and that they were now deceased. It also stated that the suspect may have had contact with at least one of the couriers prior to the incident and that the crime could have been personal. The opinion of the FBI was that it would be almost unheard of for a random couple to be abducted from their home by a stranger or stranger. The FBI gave a further recommendation to the Essex police to find out as much as they could about the couriers so that a better picture of their lives could be seen and a possible suspect in their abduction could be determined. Murdy took the FBI's advice and created a timeline of the courier's activity for 2011, although nothing really stood out to be high-risk behavior. Well, it sounds like they figured out his personality pretty quickly. They did, except they said that there's probably a chance that it could be personal and that he had met one of the couriers, but Keys would only abduct and murder strangers. Yeah. So they didn't have that part correct. Yeah, right. But as far as him being violent and he was a white male yes. with a gun, that part was right. Um, but yeah, he he liked random victims. 
sounds like, because he couldn't be linked to them. And this is what is still very rare for the couriers, especially for them to be a couple abducted by a stranger and having a violent crime like that. It's such a low percentage. Yeah. And it really was random. He just yep. happened upon him at that and he did not care that there were two people there, took his chances. And, and it sounds like it wasn't best move for him because he ended up getting frustrated because things weren't working out the way he expected. It didn't go exactly as he had planned mm -hmm. correct but he still got away with it yes he did on october 25th 2011 Verizon records were finally released, and it was revealed that at 7.27 a.m. on the morning of their disappearance, their cell phone had received a call. The call was not answered, so probably Bill's sister, but it rang long enough to be picked up by a cell phone tower, and the police, with the help from the FBI, were able to triangulate an area around the cell phone tower to create boundaries for a new search. The 10th and largest search for the couriers took place. Unfortunately, the search came up with nothing. Oh. They're putting in so many hours and they're not finding any evidence. Yeah. Keyes is like way ahead of them at this point. Like he knows how to cover his tracks. And he's already in Alaska. I mean, what did he do with the phone? Did he get rid of it? He burns their belongings. And that's one thing he always does. That's his usual method is to burn anything they had. He prided himself in always being like one step ahead of police because he swears that he never left a trace of evidence. And I think he only left like one fingerprint on something in one of the cases that we'll talk about. But he really was skilled at not leaving a trace behind. I hope at least he gets arrogant and makes a mistake and is caught. He will make a mistake. He will veer away from his usual method and eventually get caught from that. Which we'll talk about. We'll talk about it. Yes. On February 1st, 2012, in Anchorage, Alaska, Keys pulls into a back parking lot near Home Depot, across the street from Common Grounds Espresso. A coffee stand on Tudor Street, measuring only eight feet wide and about the same in length. He had removed the front license plate of his white 2004 Chevy Silverado truck, which was a very common make and model in Anchorage, Alaska, and the back plate was mostly covered with snow. He's listened to a police scanner in his truck for a while. Then he got out of his truck and proceeded to walk across the parking lot to the coffee stand. It had just started to snow. 18-year-old barista Samantha Koenig was working alone that night. She had only been working there for a month, but already had devoted customers that enjoyed getting their coffee there due to her hardworking, cheery personality. At 7.55 p.m., Keyes stepped to the window and ordered an Americano. Samantha prepared his drink and handed it towards him and then noticed the man holding a gun. He told her it was a robbery. She raised her hands immediately above her head, and he told her to turn out the lights. There was a panic button below the light switch, but in her panic, she most likely forgot that it was there. Keys noticed someone watching them from across the parking lot. The individual was smoking a cigarette and watching the coffee shop. Keys just kept talking to Samantha and told her to smile and nod as if everything was normal. After a few minutes, the watcher from the parking lot started his car and drove off. Keys then climbs into the coffee shop through the window and told Samantha to get on her knees. He then bound her hands with plastic cable ties behind her back. Samantha told Keyes that her dad would be there shortly to pick her up and said there were surveillance cameras in the shop trying to deter him from what she thought would be a robbery. When he showed no response, she told him that if he tried to rob them, the alarm would go off when she opened the register. So Keyes' usual MO was to only abduct people who had cars he could use for the abduction, never his own, and to always do his crimes away from home. This was against what he had done for years, but he would later tell police that he couldn't control himself and acted against his instinct. 
So Keyes kept a lookout for a clear path while inside the coffee shop. Once he was certain that nobody was in the parking lot, he told Samantha that they would go for a walk. He told her to act like she was his girlfriend and that she was drunk or something and he was helping her to his car. He gagged her with some napkins so that she couldn't scream. And with her hand still zip-tied, he walked her out of the coffee shop, keeping her close to him so they would look like a couple walking to the car. He also kept the gun pointed at her. When they were 200 feet away from the coffee stand, Samantha bolted from her kidnapper, but he soon caught up to her, tackled her to the ground, and then pulled out the gun and threatened to shoot her if she tried to escape again. He put Samantha in the passenger side of the truck. He got into his car and asked her if she had a debit card. She said she did, but that it was in her boyfriend's truck. He told her that he was just going to hold her for ransom. She told him that her family really didn't have a lot of money. At one point, they pulled up to a light next to Anchorage police vehicles. Samantha was too scared to try and signal the police, but Key still decided that he needed to place Samantha in the back seat where she was less noticeable. Keys pulled into a parking lot and moved Samantha to the back seat. He put two cable ties tightly around her wrist and ran several others through those to form a chain. Then he secured the chain to her seatbelt with more cable ties, deciding that he needed her cell phone to send a ransom note. And having been told by Samantha that it was back at the coffee shop, he decided to drive back there to get the phone. Having not heard any alerts about a missing person yet on his police scanner, he felt it was safe. During the time Samantha was being driven around by Keys, her boyfriend, Dwayne Tortolani, having borrowed her truck earlier to go to work, had driven to the coffee shop to pick her up around 10 p.m. He found the coffee shop closed up and there was no sign of Samantha. He started calling her cell phone and texting her, which all went unanswered as her phone was still inside the coffee shop. Becoming increasingly worried about her, he called her dad. Samantha's dad, James Koenig, said that it was probably fine and she would be home soon. Still worried, but listening to the reassurance from Samantha's father, Tortolani drove back to the house. By the time Keys returned to common grounds, Samantha's boyfriend was already gone, which I'm like, oh, if he had just been there, wouldn't that have been wonderful? But, yes. I mean, unfortunately, and I know he probably feels that guilt. I know, and it's not his fault. Of course you know, not, no. Israel Keys and his awful why does keys get the luck you know why does keys well he doesn't always have it but still it sounds like a terrifying experience for her you know she's working alone and then she thinks she's being robbed or the store is being robbed and then she gets abducted you know then he says he's just gonna hold her for ransom money so she thinks okay that's all that's gonna happen she's like my family doesn't have that kind of money right Mm -hmm. what's gonna happen to me yeah so by the time keys returned to common ground samantha's boyfriend was already gone Keys went inside and retrieved her keys and cell phone and then went back to his truck. He told Samantha that she was a good girl for not trying to escape, which is really annoying. Yeah, I don't like that. Then he texted Samantha's boyfriend pretending to be her and said that she was upset and would not be home that night because she was staying at a friend's house and needed some time alone. He then pulled the battery out of the cell phone. Samantha told Keys that she had to use the bathroom. He acted annoyed and said, all right. He then lit a cigar and offered to share with her. Hesitantly, she said sure and told him thanks. She then tried to engage him in a conversation, asking if he had gone to school around here. He told her to shut up. She tried a little later again, asking where he had gotten the cigar because it was very good. But he just told her to shut up again. 
So here she is just trying to talk to her captor, see if she can maybe... Like talk her way out of it. Kind of convince out. him. Yes. Maybe see if he has like a soul. And figure a way out of it. I think she was definitely trying. Yeah. He took her to a park to relieve herself and then headed to his house that he shared with his girlfriend. He backed into the driveway and parked close to a storage shed. That's the storage shed he built. He told Samantha to be quiet. His girlfriend was still awake in the house, but he blindfolded Samantha and led her from the truck into the shed. Two heaters were running, and a 9 by 12 tarp covered the majority of the floor. There was a foam mattress on the ground with a fleece sleeping bag. He grabbed a piece of rope and noosed it around her neck and then attached it to the walls with several screws. He untied her hands from behind her back and tied them again in front of her so that she could still smoke. So I guess that's his way he thinks of being nice to her. I have no idea. Yeah, giving her some like little freedoms. Maybe. To, to maybe make it seem like, you know. Things are going to be okay. I, I may let you go. Yeah, I think that's him trying to see that in her. Mm -hmm. He sat her on a five-gallon bucket next to a mattress that was on the tarp. He told her that he had to take care of some things regarding the ransom and needed her home address. He printed out her address from MapQuest and brought it back to her in the shed and had her point out exactly where the truck would be parked in the street. He told her that he was going to keep listening to the police scanner and if he heard anything from the scanner while he was out regarding commotion on the street, he would come back and kill her. Additionally, he turned up the radio so loud that even if she did scream, nobody would have heard it. You don't think the girlfriend would have gone in there and been like, why is it so loud in there? Apparently he would do this. He would listen to really loud, heavy metal music. She probably thought he's working on something or left his music on. He planned these things out very well. So this was normal behavior from him. Wow. Okay. Well, maybe it was normal for her to, and didn't even think twice about it. At around 2.30 a.m., he drove to Samantha's home in his girlfriend's car and parked about three blocks away then walked the remainder of the way to retrieve her driver's license and debit card from the truck. Between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., Dwayne Tortellani, not being able to sleep, states that he heard a car door shut. Tortellani went onto the front porch thinking it could be Samantha, but instead he saw Keys dressed in all black with a ski mask rummaging through his truck. And imagine at that point, they could have got him. I know. I so there just, were so many like close instances. Yes, which is so frustrating for the family, I'm sure. And why does Keys escape all the time? Mm -mm. He ran back inside to get James. But by the time they got back out there, the man was gone. Upon returning to his house, Keys went inside and poured himself a glass of wine, then checked to make sure his girlfriend was asleep. He got a scarf from her drawer, put on a headlamp, and went out into the shed where Samantha was still sitting on the bucket he had left for her. He left the lights off so that his headlamp was the only source of light in the shed. Samantha asked if everything was going all right with the ransom, and he told her that it was fine. Then he proceeded to unscrew the rope from the wall that held Samantha, but kept the noose around her neck and the ties that bound her wrists secured. He then told her to lay down on the mat on her stomach. Then he ran two pieces of cable ties through the ties on her wrists and tied them to the wall so that her arms were basically pinned mostly to the ground level. And then he did the same to her legs. She pleaded with him to not rape her. And he responded by saying, you knew this was coming. Ugh, this makes me so mad. He gagged her with the purple handkerchief and tied it around her head. Then he grabbed a 36-inch cable tie and wound it around her neck. He made it tight enough that she could feel the pressure and told her that all he would have to do is pull it, and that would be it. 
Still trying to comply so that she had a chance of survival, Samantha did not try to struggle. He then pulled out a knife, cut off all of her clothes, took off his clothes and put on a condom, and with loud music playing in the shed, he proceeded to rape her through several songs. At one point, he stabbed her in the back with a knife, and when she screamed in pain, he just told her to shut up and pulled the cable tie around her neck tighter. When he stopped raping her, she asked if he was going to kill her. He did not answer. She then tried to bargain with him, but he just yanked the cable tie around her neck until she stopped breathing. After she had been still for several minutes, he hung the cord around her neck from a nearby shelf so that her upper body was lifted off the ground. He then finished his glass of wine, got dressed and went back into his home, showered, fed his dogs, woke up his daughter, and made sure his bags were packed. A little while later, he went back into the shed and untied Samantha and put her lifeless body onto the foam mattress and wrapped the tarp around her. Then he placed her body in a cabinet in the shed. He double-locked the shed doors and went back into the house to call for a cab for a ride to the airport to catch a flight. He would be going on a week-long cruise that he had booked several months earlier with his family. That whole story just makes me sick. It should make everyone sick. If this story doesn't make you sick, you need to reassess some things about yourself because he's a complete monster. He is. And you know what really sticks out to me? It's just so weird. He does all this stuff, all this horrible stuff. And then what he is worried about is like having protection on when he is raping her essentially but see i think that was about him always being one step ahead of the police he never wanted to leave a trace of evidence and he has a lot of pride about they are they're never going to find any of my dna because i'm so good at hiding it i think he just did that because again not leaving dna should they find the body that's true yeah it makes sense when you say it that way so i don't i don't think it was because like he didn't want to catch an std or anything (laughs) i think it was clearly because he wants to always be ahead of the police yeah you're right i just oh samantha she really suffered in her last moments I can only hope that like he suffered in his last moments. We'll go into his last moments in part two for sure. I don't think there's anything that could have happened to him where you'd feel like he got enough. He just was so horrible to humans and animals. A horrible human being. Can you even call him a human being? You know, I I think he's a monster in human form. He is like reincarnated. Part one was really heavy. And we did warn you guys about it. And then part two is going to be heavy, too, because he's not finished with what he does with Samantha's body. So be warned that part two is not going to be brutal murders. It's not as brutal, but we do go into stuff still in part two. So but if you could make it through this, you can make it through part two. Yeah. Well, you did a great job with the research for this uh, this first part. It's very in-depth. He seems like somebody who took bits and pieces of other serial killers and created his own brand and just loved planning these, and it just gave him a thrill. In part two, we go into a lot of the stuff the FBI found out about him, but he kept so much from them. He only released to them what he wanted them to know. He likes his mind games. Yes, he really does. So we'll get into that. Part two. If you stuck around this long, we thank you. We hope you got some information from it that you maybe didn't know before. We do have some information in part two related to Samantha's disappearance. That's false information out there that I found out. We'll talk about that. 
in part two as well. Yeah. Watch something happy or listen to something happy though before you go to bed. If you're listening to this at night, yes. put on some light music and or watch an episode of something that's funny. Watch the Friends reunion. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> yeah, watch some watch something feel good after this. Researching it was a lot. Even you said reading it was a lot. So we definitely want you guys to have sweet dreams. We want you to stay caffeinated. Always. <laughs> Send us an email if you have anything else you'd like to add or let us know at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com. And follow us on social media at freshlybrewednoir on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have time, if you could give us a review or rate us five stars on iTunes, that would be great. We thank you for listening. Stay caffeinated. And until next time, we'll see you. Bye. Bye. Bye.